This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me, your financial podcast where we explore the markets, investable ideas, and chat to industry experts to help you manage your wealth. I'm Felicity Thomas. And I'm Candace Burke. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now today, guys, we have another special guest joining us on Talk Money To Me. Our guest today is Michael Yardney, the founder of Metropole Property Strategists and the host of the podcast show, Michael Yardney. Now we're very excited to have him on the show as he's been voted one of Australia's 50 most influential thought leaders and is best known as a property expert. So we're going to be talking all about property today. I'm excited for this chat. It's all going to be focused on property, as we said Now, Michael is in fact number one bestseller author of nine books, not one, but in fact nine. So that's an impressive, (laughs) impressive achievement. And he frequently challenges, you know, traditional financial advice with innovative ideas on the property sector, investment, what he calls investment grade, which I found really interesting, personal advice and wealth creation. His wisdom stems from personal experience and from mentoring over 2,500 business people, individuals, investors, and entrepreneurs over the decades. And I'm going to guess that over those many, many years, Michael has probably resulted in and educated more successful Aussie property investments and probably offshore investors than anyone else in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Michael also writes regularly for columns with the Yahoo Finance, Smart Company, Your Investment Property Magazine, New Zealand Property Investor Magazine and Your Mortgage. Now, he was once again voted Australia's leading property investment advisor and this is the fifth similar award he's won in the last seven years. Michael is Australia's most trusted property commentator and his opinions are frequently quoted in the media and he has been featured in all major newspapers, finance and property magazines throughout Australia. He also has a regular segment on Sky TV as well as commercial radio. So you've probably come across him in the media. Now, before we kick off today's episode, we did want to bring you the latest scoop into the Australian property market. But as always, guys, our conversation as a quick reminder, is not considered personal advice. Even though we are registered financial advisors at Shoreham Partners, please note this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Everything that we speak about are based on the facts known at the time of recording being the 10th of October, 2023. And with the disclaimer done, let's bring in Michael. Welcome, Michael, to Talk Money to Me. We're so excited to have you on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, we'll jump straight into it. Can you provide an overview of the current state of the Australian property market and how has it evolved in recent years? And I guess an additional question here, where are we in the property cycle? Okay. Well, I love that question because there isn't one Australian property market. Uh, Let's be clear. There's multiple markets. Each state's in a different stage of its own cycle. And within each state, there are multiple markets, uh, depending upon price brackets, the type of property, geography. Now, having said that, I understand what you're really asking. Uh, And if we look back over the last year, Australia's housing markets have continued to defy expectations, despite 12 interest rate increases from the Reserve Bank, which has seen official rates rise by 4% over the last year. Property prices have not only stopped falling at the beginning of this year, but they've actually been on the rise for eight, nine months now. Now, last year in 2022, we experienced a property downturn where the peak to trough change in the market was it was about 9% according to CoreLogic. Um, but it's now confusing analysts. If you look back this time last year, even the Reserve Bank thought we'd have double-digit fall in prices, and a lot of other analysts said prices were going to drop 15, 20, some even 30% on the back of interest rate increases. But it's now clear, Felicity, that the market's bottomed at the beginning of this year, and we've moved into the new phase of the cycle, the recovery phase of the property cycle. And I guess that's been helped by 
low listing volumes, aren't many properties for sale at a time when, in fact, we've had huge population growth. And while others were concerned about the fixed rates, Cliff, uh, you know, mortgage rates changing from fixed rate to variable, we can talk a bit about that later, none of that has actually affected property prices. And with inflation now likely to have peaked and interest rates probably near uh, their peak, maybe one more rate rise, I think in due course consumer confidence is going to return even stronger and the markets are going to continue their upward trajectory. That's a long-winded version of where we were and where we are today. No, that's a great response. And I guess it's what, you know, property investors want to hear at this stage as well. Well, again, we're in a rental crisis as well. And maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that because not only uh, is there a shortage of properties for sale at a time that our population is booming, but in fact, there's a shortage of properties for rent, which means that vacancy rates are low uh, and rents are skyrocketing. Yeah, that's a really good point you've um, brought up there. Let's go there if we can just really quickly on the rental property market. What are you seeing as a catalyst for something to drastically change here? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that, Candice. But the answer is there's been a lot of government talk, hasn't there? And there's uh, state governments getting involved as well. And the federal government has come up with an idea about how to build one point well, it was initially 1 million, now 1.2 million properties in the next five years. A lot of talk, but nothing much happening. Interestingly, it's really just related to supply and demand. At the moment, there's very, very strong population growth. A large part of it is students, full-time immigrants, but also students have taken up all those apartments. Remember, for a couple of years, we didn't have students coming into the country. So net immigration, because there's always people leaving, people coming, but there weren't all the students leaving at the end of their tertiary experience. And and so therefore, uh, there's been a big demand. The other thing that's changed, Candice, is how we want to live and where we want to live. So there's actually fewer people per household. There's actually uh, a little bit decrease in the number of people per average household. There's more single and two people households. And that, according to the census, has created the requirement for just 120,000 more dwellings just to house the current population. Plus, many of us are looking for a Zoom room. You're working from home. I'm working from home at the moment. We've got a hybrid uh, relationship with work for a lot of people. So it's even meant that we need more rooms, more accommodation. All this has put pressure on the rental markets. And what's going to happen is we need more supply. There's been lots of ideas about how that could happen. Uh, but, But the next round of supply of particularly apartments, but also houses, is going to cost a lot more. So that's just going to mean that developers aren't going to start building until markets go up even higher to make it financially viable. So I think we've got a rental crisis on our hands for quite some time. Yeah, that is concerning to hear, I guess, and that's the reality. And as you said, it is a bit politics and it's all just headlines and a lot of stats and data, but nothing's really... I guess, addressing the issue. So if we take a step back, whether you're looking to join the rental market or buy a home or another investment property to add to the portfolio, what are the key factors or strategies that you advise, Michael, or consider for Aussies out there? If you're talking about property investment, it's a process. It's not an event. You actually need 20, maybe 30 years of investing to develop a level of financial independence. So I guess the first question to ask is, what's your plan? What's your end goal? What are you trying to achieve? Because you need a strategy. Uh, Look, there's more than one way to get to your end goal. Some of our clients who at Metropole who want to get involved in property investment want to take it more slowly. They want to go overseas for a while or one may stop uh, their job and uh, have a baby. So one has to actually have a plan that will suit your lifestyle. The plan doesn't just involve the end game, but you've got to have an end game to get to. And it's got to be more than I just want to get to Sydney. You need to have a street and an address in Sydney. In other words, you want to know what lifestyle you want in the future, what choices you want, because people invest to give them choices down the track. And then part of the strategy, the plan, in my mind, has to be a finance plan, an ownership plan, a taxes structuring plan, a plan to maximise your growth, but also to minimise your risk. And whether it's a home 
or an investment, I think it's important to recognise that location, where the property is located, that does 80% of the heavy lifting. I guess any property could become an investment. You, you kick out the te- landlord, you put a tenant in, it's suddenly an investment. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's investment-grade candidate. Yeah, exactly. And one quick follow-up here, if I can. Do you believe in the idea of renting in the area, like you said, to find the postcode, the lifestyle, tick, 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 before you potentially make such a bigger purchase? as a home or an investment? Well, there's a concept called rent vesting where a lot of people want to live in a particular area but can't afford to. And so I'd be suggesting that it's for a lot of young people, it's a great idea to rent where you want to live, where your lifestyle is, where your uh, friends, your family are. But if you can't afford to own it, rent there. But then buy somewhere where you can afford. And some people say, oh, look, rent money's dead money, but not if you've got on the other side of the equation a tenant paying you rent for the investment property that you own. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Michael, you've had so many great articles out. And I remember reading an article that spoke about, you know, the best regions and cities in Australia uh, that are showing the most promise for growth potential for property investment. Can we go Mm. into that a little bit more detail and, and why you've kind of selected those regions and cities? Well, I'm sometimes pushed by the media. Tell me the best 10 places in Sydney to invest by the end of this year. I hate those sort of questions because, as we've already said, property investment's a long-term affair. So you need to understand where a property or type of property is going to be in continuous strong demand in the long term. Now, in the long term... Australian fundamentals are going to be good. I believe in the future our Australian economy is going to keep growing. We're going to be a wealthy nation. And the government's got a business plan of increasing our population to 40 million people by the middle of this century. So if there's more of us and we're going to be wealthy, that's going to keep pushing up property values. But our markets are going to be fragmented. The gap between the more affluent areas... And the cheaper areas, in my mind, is only going to get bigger, as happens in all uh, big cities. Our capital cities, and in particular the three big capital cities, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, are likely to outperform because that's where the bulk of the population growth is going to be over the next decades. Um, And in general, houses will outperform they grow faster, they grow better, and therefore the rents go up uh, than apartments or townhouses, but not everyone can afford a house. I'd rather own a family-friendly apartment in a beachfront suburb of Sydney overlooking Bondi uh, Beach or or those areas uh, than a house 50 kilometres out from the CBD. I think the other style of accommodation that's going to become more preferred by many people as we move into a more densified um, lifestyle is going to be townhouses where you've got large modern accommodation on compact blocks. So the intergenerational report which recently came out and the government's talk about uh, how it's going to uh, build these 1.2 million properties all shows that we're going to live in much, much denser cities moving forward. So I think one of the things we're going to have to get used to is living in uh, medium density and in some cases high density accommodation but I'd be sticking to the more affluent and in particular gentrifying areas of our capital cities and I've got a strategy I've got a plan of, of how to find those and maybe we can chat about that down the track. Yeah absolutely that sounds great because you also did an article wrote an article based on why neighborhood is so important. Hey, I'm really impressed that you're reading my views. thank you. <laughs> You spoke about how neighbourhood's so important. And what I actually really liked is you did actually mention my neighbourhood where I live in Roselle, Balmain, because obviously we're close to the city, but the houses haven't quite boomed. I mean, you still can get a house for around the you know, $2 million mark. They haven't quite boomed. You tell that to people in regional Australia. Well, that's true. But boomed from a Sydney CBD compared to the eastern suburbs, for example. You know, you can't buy an apartment there for $2 million, but you can buy a house in my area for $2 million. Well, neighbourhood is important. I think that was brought home during COVID. So, uh, but it it stuck. The concept of a 20-minute neighbourhood is a town planning concept where it's a nice idea to be 20 minutes from 
work if possible, but also amenities and not just one supermarket, but a Coles and Aldi and a Woolworths uh, to have near gyms, near places of worship, near parks, near uh, recreation areas. In Melbourne in particular, where, where I am, where we were locked down for 260-something days, it became very important, but it always has been. It's just been accentuated. And so, therefore, if money was no object, more and more people would want to live in the sort of areas that you talked about at the moment, the inner suburbs of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and in fact all our capital cities. And you can't tell me uh, that the, the properties 40 kilometres out are going to become as expensive as properties three, four kilometres from the CBD in 20, 30 years. The gap will always be there. The rich don't like to commute. It is a challenge. <laughs> it is a social problem. But basically, um, those more affluent established money areas are going to outperform in the long term because of the amenity, because they're gentrifying. So it's not just the wealthy people are there, but it's also wealthy people, people with more incomes are moving into the areas and doing up those older places. Yeah, that's really good insight. So we have, Michael, just for some context, quite a few listeners in the the brackets of, you know, 18 years to 35 years. So if we generalise and say they're your typical first-home buyers – what would you say to potentially a listener who's thinking about getting into the property market for the first time? What would you say, you know, some strategies for them to consider to help maximise their chance of success or minimise risks? Well, let's talk about uh, the concept of property investing that a lot of people want to in that age group. Um, and we talked before about maybe renting where you want to live and then investing somewhere else. First of all, understand the odds are stacked against you. 50% of investors who buy sell up in the first five years. In fact, the most recent CoreLogic pain and gain report showed a lot of selling up after three years and 92% never get past their second property. In fact, ATO stats show that only 20,000 investors in Australia, around 20,000, own six or more properties. That's 1% of investors. Now, interestingly, uh, a recent audit of the results of our clients at Metropole showed they're 7.3 times more likely to fall into that 1% of property investors. But by the way, this doesn't mean you shouldn't get involved in property investment. It means you've got to do things differently to the average investor. You've got to listen to different people than the average investor. Look, be careful who you listen to. There's 25 million property experts in Australia. Every weekend, people give you opinions. Just because they've got an opinion doesn't mean you should be taking their advice. I think the other concept is that residential real estate is generally a high growth, relatively low yield investment. Uh, but there's lots of gurus out there telling you, or so-called gurus, uh, if people could see us, you know, I'm using sort of finger quotes, uh, uh, that recommend investing for cash flow. I think it's also important to realise there's stages of a property investment journey. Educate yourself first. Yeah. Because it's a big commitment. Um, Asset growth is the next stage. Your job is to grow your assets, and that can take 15, 20 years, and a couple of property cycles at least, and then you slowly lower your loan-to-value ratios and live off your properties. But I think a real message I'd give everybody who's starting out is don't do it on your own, whether it's for your own home or for an investment. Uh, Get a good team around you, a financial planner, a mortgage broker. Get a smart... uh, investment savvy mortgage broker, a property strategist. And and maybe there's one other thing I'd like to share, and that's don't be too scared about it. It is a big decision, but only listen to people who know what they're talking about. Because as I said, everyone's got an opinion. And the media loves sensational headlines. You turn on the news and you hear about property, but mainly the bad news. Remember all the talked last year, only 12 months ago, about a recession, about mortgage cliffs, about property values dropping. Um, It doesn't mean this information is useful. Most property journalists don't have any economic uh, background, so be careful who, who you listen to. Now, the other last thing, you don't need to know everything before you get started. It sounds really, really complicated. If you want to know everything, you're just going to get to the stage of procrastination, you know, analysis, paralysis. Uh, But get a good team around you and, yeah, you're going to make mistakes. And I mentioned a while ago to have a plan. Plan for your plan not to go to plan because things go wrong along the way.
Yeah, and you know what? I think uh, you mentioned this earlier, and it's a you know very key point. I've had a lot of people say to me they're just waiting for the property market to drop, waiting, 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 and they've been wait- waiting all year, right? Um, and they're continuously waiting, waiting, waiting. So that's that procrastination that you spoke about, waiting for a, a better deal. And and sometimes you know it's probably like we've seen in the last year, property prices have actually gone up in those key areas. They've not gone down. Could I just ask who'd like to buy their property their parents bought at the price their parents paid 10 15 years ago but you but you speak to them and it was scary it was nerve-wracking it seemed expensive at the time it just didn't make sense then either it never seems all right a hundred percent Correct. And you know what? When the So I've bought two properties and when I've actually mm-hmm. purchased them, I've stretched myself a little bit and they've worked out very well over the long term. One's been held for 10 years and one's for uh, three, four years now. Um, so I think it's about mm. holding on to the assets yes. in real term as well, in long term. And very I guess true. on this, coming back to key indicators. So you did mention it before, growth and yield. I mean, what are some key indicators or metrics that investors should track to assess the health of the property market? in their chosen area? Well, I think one of the things that's going to drive the property market in a particular area is the demographics. It's something most people don't think about, but I like to look at the demographics of an area. Are there more owner-occupiers than investors? So those areas where it was dominated by investors, like the inner CBD apartment market, for example, that's the areas that they're the areas that suffered during the, the recent downturn and other ones as well. But if you've got areas where there's a large number of owner-occupiers, particularly ones who've been around for a long time, many of them have paid off their mortgage. If you look at the statistics, 50% of all investors, I'm sorry, homeowners in Australia, 50% of homeowners don't even have a mortgage. So I like investing in areas where there are affluent people. The demographics suggests that they've got incomes going up above average and as we mentioned not before not just those people living in the area but those moving into the area gentrifying suburbs um, that's a good indicator now what a lot of people look at well i think there's two things they look at auction clearance results every sunday monday but also median prices that's in my mind one of the worst indicators and we've got a buyer's agency in melbourne sydney and brisbane and help home buyers and investors purchase properties and people keep coming to us with, oh, this is the median price of the area. It's a very poor indicator, even though it's one of the most commonly cited ones. They're not as meaningful in some areas as others. So I live in the suburb of Brighton in Melbourne. I'm in a lovely apartment, in a penthouse apartment, a couple of doors from the beach. There's a particular street, uh, St Kilda Street. So all those houses close to the beach have got the same postcode as the other houses on the other side of St Kilda Street that don't have walking distance to the beach or access to the beach. And so therefore, there's a different uh, type of accommodation, different type of house. Then you go further into the same postcode, Brighton, and there's a whole lot of older, quite historic properties. So medium prices are meaningless in my area because within that area, there are multiple different sorts of property. They're more meaningful in areas where... Um, there's a more homogenous market. Like a subdivision. Yeah, so new new estates. Having said that, if there's all of a sudden been a new block of one-bedroom or two-bedroom apartments, that may lower the median price in an area. But that's, again, one of the things that's frequently cited. But when you asked how do you choose the health of the area there, in fact, I'd be looking at demographics rather than the reported median prices for this. That's a really good insight. I'm, I'm really loving that. That's that's That makes a lot of sense, particularly when you've explained your own personal circumstances with the different pockets within your one suburb. So if we stay within that mindset I'm reading a lot of reports about the opportunities in Perth and Brisbane, you know, in the growth corridors there. Are you seeing that? I guess what emerging trends and pockets within the Aussie market is looking attractive from your perspective? Okay. Growth corridors often mean more people are moving in. More people, abundant supply is the enemy of capital growth. So I'm not looking for growth corridors. I'm looking for areas where capital growth increases and if you're looking at the concept of gentrification over time to help increase the value in your area that's unlikely to happen in new areas in those new suburbs in the areas where there's physical growth lots of new houses house and land packages or apartments a lot of the young families 
are living well. They're, they're over. I was going to say overcommitting themselves. They're committing themselves to the max to get into the housing market, and we all have to when we start. But they're the areas also where tenants in general. Um, a living week to week as well. So I'd rather be investing in areas where owner-occupiers are more affluent, as we said before. You mentioned Brisbane. I believe leading up to the Olympics with infrastructure development, Brisbane is going to perform very well, but partly because of internal immigration. So while immigration from overseas is in particular going to Melbourne and Sydney, but a little bit to Brisbane and Perth, uh, a lot of People, not just because of COVID, but it's continued on since, are moving up to Queensland. And that's actually now going to be on the, uh, well, it's a new world city. Melbourne and Sydney are the established cities that are known around the world. Uh, but, but Brisbane with the Olympics is going to attract a lot of attention, a lot of tourism. Now, we know that the Olympics didn't make a huge difference to property prices in the short term in Sydney, nor did the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne or Brisbane. Uh, so I'm not in suggesting invest there because of uh, the Games, but more because of the demographics. More affluent people are moving there, big jobs are there, higher wages are there. Perth has underperformed for well over a decade. Perth values have hardly moved at all. Yes, it's got to catch up a bit, but it's... It's almost a different, I'm going to offend somebody, a different country. It's on the other side of the world. In fact, I think Perth wanted a seed from <laughs> Australia a couple of years ago, Western Australia. And it's not a mining town. It's not a one-horse town, but it is very dependent upon a couple of industries. So I'd rather be investing for the long term in locations where there are multiple industries and higher paying industries it's just going to add some stability um, so again avoid the new the off the plan those growth areas and stick to more established areas i'd rather buy an established apartment even though they haven't performed as well in the last decade or so but moving forward the new round of apartments that are going to be built are going to come on the market at a much higher price only because they have to and developers won't be building them until they achieve higher prices. That's going to pull up the value of established apartments, Candice. Okay, so if, for example, someone listening had an apartment, right, they've held it for you know five to ten years and they kind of feel like the growth is maxed out there, even though it's in an established area, say 15 kilometres from Sydney CBD, do you think there's potentially more upside now uh, from all things considered? Well, the growth is maxed out. In 10 years' time, it'll be worth more. Will it outperform a house? What's the highest and best use of your funds? That's the sort of thing that we like to do by putting a strategic plan together and using numbers and figures rather than emotion. So if you bought something, uh, I think you've got to treat your property investments like a business. It's a bit different for your house because when you choose a house, you're buying for emotional reasons where the kids go to school, uh, the neighbourhood you want to live in. But for an investment, there's significant costs getting in and out so you've got to make sure you can outperform the averages if you do get out but interestingly as you mature and as your investment matures as your property portfolio matures often the properties you first bought are not appropriate for you anymore you're playing a different game there so sometimes if you're playing the long-term game yes you take a short-term loss to actually because you make a mistake i mean the first 10 15 years or oh, 10 years a lot of people are just learning what not to do and they regret the investment decisions they've made and one of the mistakes they make is holding on to an underperforming property don't expect a first-class return from a second-grade property which is interesting that stat you said earlier on i think you said 50% of homeowners or investors sell within the first three to five years. So that's the reality of investors, sorry. That's the reality of, yes, I've done my I've done my numbers wrong and I'm impatient and I'm an emotional and, and I wanted something else than I realised. So that's, that's a pretty confronting statistic if we think about it that way. That is not a new statistic. You would think that currently with all the blogs and all the podcasts and all the experts uh, that there'd actually be less errors made the answer is that hasn't changed over the years we're human we make mistakes you're right we do we're emotional we get in our head too much we're human all right well thanks for clarifying that let's take a break but before we do that um we'll just tease out what we're going to be talking about next we're going to be asking you michael your preferred property investment strategies 
I'm going to ask you a question about renovations as well. Before we do that, let's first hear from our sponsors. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we are back. All right, so Michael, what are the potential risks and challenges that property investors may face in the Australian market and how can they navigate them effectively? Well, I think partly navigating them is having a good team around and not trying to do it on your own. But the property markets are fragmented. We said that right at the beginning. So there isn't one market and some will outperform others. And we had a little bit of a talk about why that could occur and how to avoid that. Also, listening to the wrong people and buying the wrong property is an issue. Uh, But also understanding the property market cycles. It always will. There's going to be years when property values increase like this year, periods when they go down, like last year, 2022, uh, periods when they stagnate for a while as well. So it's um, important to understand that principle and not get despondent. But I think one of the big factors people don't understand when they get into property is that it's a game of finance with some houses thrown in the middle. So property investors have not just enough finance to buy them a property, but strategic investors get a financial buffer in place to see them through the ups and downs, through things like the rising interest rates that we've all experienced in the last 12, 15 months. Uh, So they buy, well, I guess, get finance to buy them time to ride through those cycles. And I think the other factor is understanding that you really need a long-term focus with property investing, not trying to outperform the market this year or next year, not buying the next shiny toy, the next big hotspot area, because we found this year's hotspots tend to be next year's hotspots, buying areas that have always outperformed. Property investment is simple if you follow those rules, um, but, but, but some it's too simple for some intelligent people who try and make more out of it than it is. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I guess bringing it back to our audience and what Candace and I do on a day-to-day basis, we say this all the time, it's really time in the market, it's patience, um, you know, it's having that cash buffer when equity markets do go down. You know, in our end, we actually like to top up good companies when they're being sold. And luckily with properties, they're not valued every day or they don't move around. Yeah, yeah every second so people don't panic as much because it's a bit more illiquid to sell whilst in our in our world people panic and sell their equities which is generally the worst thing to do now in, interestingly i if anyone tells you share shares only or property property only run away very quickly so i believe a balanced portfolio is important maybe i could uh, suggest my long term preferred strategy because it'll bring together a couple of the things we've said. I I mean, you're a different age to me. Our audience is all different ages. So we don't know what the market's going to be like in 10, 15, 20 years' time. We don't know if you're going to be able to um, negatively gear or not, whether you can access your super, what the pension age is going to be, what interest rates are going to be. So you've got to make a plan, but you've also got to allow things to be flexible. And I think the end game for all investors should be that you own your own home when you're going to your golden years with no debt. Now, I'm not giving financial advice. (laughs) I'll give you the disclaimer there. But you should own your own home with no debt. Agree. Then... You should own a property portfolio and have the loan-to-value ratios lowered such that it's at least washing its face near the end of your uh, property journey when you're not getting strong income from other areas. I also believe you need areas of cash flow, which could be 
shares, could be your superannuation fund, could be maybe commercial property, because residential real estate is not as cash flow intensive as, but, but, but you need a balance of assets at the end to get into your, and of course, you're also going to have superannuation, and again, we can't give advice on superannuation here, that, that, that's what your team is specialised in, but, but I believe in having a balance like that and then working towards that over time. Music to our ears, Michael. Absolutely. And I think the thing is, you know, we, for some clients that the situation was right for them, they've actually purchased and had commercial property in the self-managed super fund and had residential property in the self-managed super fund and have been lucky enough to sell those assets tax-free and make quite a large gain. So there's definitely things where both worlds collide as well. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But you've got to know what stage of the game you're at. So asset growth first uh, and then eventually cash flow. So people buy property because they're looking for more cash flow. I remember in the old days when I used to sit with clients, I've got a team of people who do that. Now they'd come and say, I want to buy a property so it'll pay for my kids' school fees. I want to buy a property so it can actually uh, go on holidays. No, that's not how residential real estate works. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about, you know, the rationale behind it, the methodology, don't get emotional, make sure it's a plan that's going to work for you and your lifestyle. That's clear as day for us. But can I walk us through the emotional aspect if I can? You know, I want to hear your insights into renovations because you hear the saying, you know, don't overspend or overcapitalize on your house or apartment. What are your thoughts here? You know, do you believe potentially you should assess the situation and sell if the renovations is maybe going to cost too much and you can't see the upside potential? Or do you go, look, stuff it. This is my forever home and I love the neighborhood, like you said, in the community. So it doesn't really matter what I spend on the budget. Okay. So if you're talking about homeowners, and I think that was the gist of your question, um, then at the moment, renovations are hard to do. It's hard to get builders. They're expensive. But it's actually still, in general, cheaper than the cost of buying and selling. Now, if it's your home, there's no capital gains tax involved, but there still is agent fees and stamp duty there's in the uh, and purchase costs and all the hassles of doing it so if you're planning to live in the property for a long time and the latest statistics suggest that we are we're actually living in houses on average of 13 years now it used to be uh, 11 and apartments nine years it used to be seven according to the latest uh, figures from domain we're not moving as much as we used to partly because of the costs, partly because in this current market, sellers are nervous. Hey, can I even find somewhere mm-hmm. else? Do I buy first? Do I sell first? So I think doing a renovation makes sense. And just like when you buy your home, emotions are part of it. So if you buy an investment, yes, you shouldn't necessarily buy one just because you could live there or want to live there or want a holiday in that area. But if it's your home, your heart's got to sing when you come home every night. Your eyes have got to light up when you come home every day. So on that basis, I'm not offended by paying a little bit more for a renovation today. It doesn't have to stack up completely if it suits your lifestyle. I mean, we should enjoy our lives while we can. We just see the terrible things that are happening overseas. You see the health issues and other things that are happening there appreciate what we've got we live in the best country in the world in my opinion the best time in history yeah you can spend some money on yourself it's the lucky country as we always say right so with the areas of growth and i guess certain property types residential commercial industrial do you believe there's a greater potential if we just think of capital growth in these subsections Okay, so commercial property works in a very, very different cycle to residential property. It's more yield-based and um, finance is different. And there's some blogs out now, some buyers agents now, people recommending people buy commercial properties, even if they haven't got the budget for it. In my opinion, that's wrong. You've got to understand what game you're playing. Um, and uh, In fact, that was one of my biggest mistakes. I got involved in commercial property early in the piece in my 30s because that's what the big boys did. Um, I bought, in fact, I still even remember the address, 21 and 23 Dandenong Street, Dandenong Industrial Area there. Uh, 
it's not what I needed, but I thought I was you know, being a big boy. I sold those and I've done other things. I own a lot of commercial, residential, uh, industrial properties. I've got a diversified portfolio now, uh, but, but I've had to build up to that. So if you're wanting to build your asset base and capital growth, my suggestion is start with residential property. It's actually difficult to diversify in property as opposed to shares, only just because of the the dollar value. But I've fine-tuned my strategies over the last five decades, and I use a top-down approach, um, a strategic approach. So I believe that 80% of the performance of your property is going to be related to its location. One that outperforms the averages, and 20% will be related to the right property in that location. Let's look at which state is going to perform strongly in, in the right stage of its economic growth. And then within that state, we look at areas where there's going to be jobs growth, because jobs growth is going to lead to wages growth, which is going to lead to people coming into that area who are going to want to rent initially and then buy initially. So we look at the state and then the right suburbs. And then within the suburb, look, every, every suburb you'd know in your own suburb, there's areas where you'd invest or live in and areas where you wouldn't. And then down even to the right street. Now, you've got to know the areas. So I jokingly say, you know, there are some streets in Sydney where on the north side, you've got magnificent views of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the water. And on the south side, you've got magnificent views of the houses on the north side. You've got views of the Sydney Harbour and the bridge and the water. So you've got to know your patch. And then once you find the right location, I use a six-stranded uh, approach to owning the right properties. Ones that only appeal to owner-occupiers. Not that I want to sell the property, but owner-occupiers, others are going to buy similar properties pushing up local prices. Last couple of years where we looked at areas which were more investor focused um, and they didn't perform as well because investors sell up when things are bad while owner occupiers would rather eat magic noodles than sell up their homes. And also those type of properties that are invest uh, owner occupier properties, investment grade properties in my mind, uh, uh, they, they appeal to more affluent tenants who are going to be able to pay your increasing rent. As an investor, I think it's important to remember that your future income is going to be dependent upon your tenants' ability to keep paying you rent. So you don't want tenants who are a week or two away from broke. So I look for properties with owner-occupier appeal. I look for properties below intrinsic value. That's why we avoid new and off-the-plan properties which come at a premium price. I look for properties with a high land-to-asset ratio. That doesn't necessarily mean a big block of land, but one where the land component's a significant part of the asset value. And remember, apartments have an attributable land value underneath them. Buying the big towers, you've got 200 to 300 of the land, but buying one of those medium-density, older, uh, three-storey walk-up apartments, you've got a tenth of the block of land underneath you. That's worth something. I look for areas with a strong area of strong capital growth. Also, I like properties with a twist, something a bit special, something a bit unique, something scarce, so that at the moment anything lets. But during times of uh, when there isn't a shortage of properties like now, to buy or to sell, if it's got a better balcony, a double garage, more space, a courtyard, something with a twist. But we talked about renovations a moment ago. I also like properties with the ability to manufacture capital growth. I do like the concept of renovations, refurbishment or redevelopment. Um, so rather than waiting for the market to do the heavy lifting, during a period of lower capital growth, you can actually manufacture some capital growth by doing good renovations or development. I really hope all of our listeners are putting down those points because they are just fantastic. Honestly, such great insights. So your six-step approach. So I guess on this, Michael, I mean, we've spoken about it before, but I mean, a lot of investors are really looking at do we want to look at capital growth or do we want to look at yield as a property investor? I mean, obviously, it's nice to find a nice combination of both, but does it just kind of come down to individual circumstances, what's kind of right for them? Because um, you don't want people getting in a yield trap uh, with property either like they do with some equities well in my opinion you've got to start as i've said a couple of minutes ago by having a plan so everyone's circumstances are different everyone's budget is different everyone's risk profile is different but again if you look at the results of those who've been successful and developed financial freedom from property they have not invested for cash flow. They've kept their job, they've kept their business, uh, they've actually built an asset base. So it's got to be done in the right order. So cash flow, and that gives you choices in life, is important in the long term. But in the short term, asset growth. All right. So you need to create a good property strategy plan. It's not just picking up 
anything and everything. And a finance plan to see you through, yeah. Absolutely. Those are such, such great points. Now, if you do this on the flip side, are there any, I guess, regulatory or legislative changes on the horizon that you know of that could negatively impact or positively impact property investors? And I guess how should they prepare for these changes? Well, I mentioned a while ago, <laughs> prepare for your plans not to go to plan, but you should yeah. <laughs> own the best assets you can in the correct ownership structures and therefore you've got to get advice for that. Now, for some people, it'll be in their own name. For some people, it'll be in joint names. For others, it'll be in trusts or sometimes even mm. in superannuation funds, even though uh, that needs special advice and uh, some people are maybe making wrong recommendations there. So be careful whose advice you get from that. Um, but, but own the best assets you can to weather the storm because there will always be changes. The government is treating property investors as an ATM at the moment. Uh, there's been changes happening recently in Victoria. Well, they're calling it an Airbnb tax, but a short-stay tax with different land tax changes. There were legislative changes, a residential tenancy changes that made it difficult. I guess it's a cost of doing business. That's why it's good to get a good team around you and not be deterred by this. The other big change is actually finance, what the banks are able to lend you, and is APRA going to loosen the screws a bit? They've tightened it that there's a 3% lending buffer. If APRA makes some changes, as they will in due course when they realise interest rates have peaked, uh, they may make lending looser. Um, keep an eye out for it, but don't be too deterred by all these things. Look, politics will be politics. Regulations will change and regulators will always step in when needed. That's a no-brainer, right? But I guess what I wanted to go through with you now, Michael, if I can, is something that you just said uh, which resonated with me was that, you know, the environment is always ever-changing. And one thing that is definitely an evident trend in the wrong direction, I would argue, is the gap between the top 10%, I would say, to the rest of us. The wealth gap is getting bigger. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And we're really seeing it in the property market. So I read a really interesting statistic that nearly 50 to 60% of the generation currently getting into the property market have had financial help in some capacity from the older generation. Yes. Bank of mum and dad. Yeah. So it comes back to your, you know, I'm going to say team around you, but also support network around you in, in that sense. So are you seeing this trend getting worse over the years? Unfortunately, it will. Uh, and that's a shame in Australia where we don't want the wealth gap to widen. Um, having said that, those who have got wealthy parents are in for quite an inheritance tsunami, tsunami. in Love 10, it. 15 years' time as, as, as the baby boomers uh, eventually are going to die. Uh, I hope my, parents, my kids aren't listening to this. <laughs> but bottom line, they're going to be left a lot as well. But currently, it's really hard for first home buyers to get in the market. Mm -hmm. But I bought my first property in the early 1970s, 72 or 73, I'm not exactly sure when, I went halves with my parents because I couldn't do it on my own. We paid $18,000. We put $2,000 deposit down, we put $1,000 each. 30-year loan for $16,000. had no idea how we were going to repay it. Um, I interestingly, we got $12 a wow. week rent and we were excited. Um, I ended up selling that property back to my parents, my half, because the inflation came, the property went up in value, I got married later. Uh, my mistake, I sold it my, for my half share. Of, it was worth 32000 then. Uh, my wife Pam and I bought it back from my mother in the early 1990s for $250,000, $260,000. I've since pulled it down, so I still own the first property, but there's two townhouses there worth maybe $3.6, $3.8 million from my $18,000 property. Um, so uh, that was started off with the, the help of Bank of Mum and Dad. That's such a nice story. Well, I mean, that is a great success story because I guess we, that was yeah. pretty negative of us. You know, it's a trend that's unfortunately going the wrong way and we do need people of, of importance listening who can make change happen. We need it to be easier for first-home buyers, right, to spread yes. the wealth. So are there any other, you know, short success stories or case studies that you've come across for investors or homeowners that have, ch you know, achieved kind of what you just went through, a really great story? Well, 
I mentioned a while ago that we had a recent audit of the results of our clients at Metropole, and we've been giving strategic property advice. So we're much more than buyers agents. We don't just buy a property, but we start off first by putting a plan together and then helping people plan to become the people they plan to become and then implementing that. And we found that 7.3, there were 7.3 times more likely to own six or more properties being that top 1% of investors. And when we looked at it, they had a, lot, a number of things in common, but there were a number of things they didn't have in common. Their age wasn't, some were young, some were old, their background, their race, the income wasn't. So in other words, some had very high income. We see a lot of people with high income, but poor financial discipline, uh, and they don't ever build a substantial portfolio, and others with what some would call relatively modest incomes, uh, but good financial discipline build substantial portfolios. So I think the common themes we found were they had a strategy, they got a good team around them, uh, they recognised the importance of capital growth. We're repeating things that I've already mentioned to you before. They took a long-term view. They had the finance strategy, so they didn't have to sell up when interest rates went up. And they also knew that sometimes the right thing to do is nothing. People are so excited about it. I want to keep building, I want to keep building. It's not the number of properties you own. It's actually the dollar value of them. And um, so I'd rather own one Westfield shopping centre than 50 secondary properties. So they understood the importance of that. And they also had risk mitigation strategies. They understood that risk is really what you hadn't thought of when you thought you understood all the risks. So they owned the right properties and the right entities, had financial buffers. They, in turn, eventually diversified but in general many of them owned properties in the same area i mean i know in shares and other areas you diversify but if you found a good location why would you go to a secondary location rather than buy another one so i've got a very substantial property portfolio and it's in probably four municipalities in my residential portfolio i've got also commercial uh, industrial and i've got things in other states but in melbourne why would I go to a secondary suburb when I've actually found a good location? I, I think it was Warren Buffett who said something like the diversification is for the ignorant. That's actually a really good point. It makes a lot of sense. Um, now, I know, Michael, we've already kind of discussed the balance of short-term and long-term gains with long-term wealth building strategies in property investment. But do you believe there's a specific timeline or a holding period that investors should really aim for to maximise their returns in the property market? I think short-term is anything less than 10 years in property, medium-term is 15 years, and long-term, and that's what you should be doing, is 20 years plus. See, I said earlier on it takes 20-odd, 30 years to become financially independent through a property, and that's because for a lot of people, the first five, sometimes 10 years is learning what not to do. As we've said before, they make mistakes, they end up selling up, they listening to different people and the wrong sort of people, and then you need a couple of cycles at least to give you strong growth, and um, properties double in value, well, Good properties, eight to 10 years. Uh, on average, though, it's more like 15 years uh, that it takes the average property to double, but we want it outperform the markets. And you need to build a substantial asset base. And as we said earlier on, at the same time, not just a property base. So uh, you're going to need some of your spare cash flow to put into equities or other financial products. So it's a long-term game. And it really comes down to, like you've said multiple times on this episode, putting the right plan and strategy in place and having the right people around you. So it's been such a great, insightful conversation with you, Michael, really taking a lot of value for me personally, and I think a lot of our listeners have as well. To end the chat though, if we're building out a diversified property portfolio with residential, commercial, industrial, apartments, townhouses, houses, the whole gambit, plus, you know, cash flow investments like shares, which we love, what resources, tools, education, hot tips, you know, do you suggest for individuals to look for? Well, as I said a while ago, diversification is the protection against ignorance. It makes little sense if you know what you're doing. So some people would actually say in property as opposed to the share portfolio, if you found areas that outperform and uh, first-class uh, properties, uh, I'd be owning more of those. I think eventually you should diversify from one state to another because the Sydney market works at a different cycle to Brisbane, different cycle to Melbourne. So two, three years down the track, you go to the bank and say, hey, please refinance my Melbourne properties. Don't worry about the Sydney properties. And two, three years later, you say, hey, look, Sydney market's moved up. Let's re refinance those to top up my buffers or get equity for another property. But 
be patient, take a long-term view. And interestingly, most of the things you read, most of the educational material you're going to get is not going to help you because, again, if you do what everyone else does, you're going to get the same results as them. So I think it really involves having a good team of advisors around you and continuously learning. One of the mistakes people make is, I guess, confirmation bias. And as financial planners, you'd see this all the time as well. So I tend to listen to podcasts, read blogs from people whose opinions I don't agree with, just to keep testing my opinions. Because one of the things that happens is if you keep doing well in property or any investment or in business, um, you tend to then um, exclude other areas. You're blind to other opportunities. Keep learning uh, but be careful who you're listening to. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. Thank you for that. Really great advice. It makes sense. So, Michael, if our listeners want to hear more from you, uh, they can tune into your own podcast. Yes, the Michael Yardney podcast. So before you finish, <laughs> stop for a sec, pause, come back to this, <laughs> but go on your podcast app and down uh, follow the Michael Yardney podcast. I also have a daily uh, newsletter that Last year was read by, I think, about 2.7 million people, propertyupdate.com.au, and uh, there's lots of people's opinions there, all the experts, leading experts in property, uh, write for property update. And Metropole, my uh, company, is more than the buyer's agent. We help home buyers and investors uh, Create intergenerational wealth through strategic advice, metropole.com.au. Perfect. I was just about to ask that. Where can they reach out to you and your team if they want to engage your services? Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today on Talk Money to Me. It's been such a great episode. I had a lot of fun. Wow, Candice, that was such a great episode. Honestly, such valuable insights from Michael. Um, now, stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more collaboration in this space because we know a lot of investors are interested in diversified portfolios of not only just shares uh, and funds, but property. It was great. There's so many great tips that Michael shared. So we're going to be bringing you those hot tips through our socials. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shoreham Partners, please note our discussion today with Michael does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, go out and seek your own professional advice. Reach out to us or Michael directly. He shared his details before you make your investment decisions. Everything is based on the facts known at the time recording being the 10th of October, 2023. That's it. And make sure you follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. And remember, if you've got any questions or you want to ask us anything, you can contact us, tmtm at equitynates.com. We'll be back next week. Until next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.